Welcome to the first podcast on our new website, jointly hosted with Premier Lifeline. In this podcast, Jeff Lucas and Ruth Dernley, in their regular radio programme In Good Company, broadcast by Premier, interview Will van der Hart about the importance of dealing with mental health problems in today's churches. quite a busy life because when you're not at Spring Harvest your day job is that you're a vicar in That's fact right. you're, you're just about to relocate tell us a bit about what's happening yeah there. I'm um, I'm a vicar at St Mary's Bryanston Square at the moment in the middle of in the middle of London um, which is sort of Barry Kissel and John Peters are my, are my two bosses and, and we've got really you know it's a, it's, a, it's a great church it's a really really busy city centre church um uh, but I'm, I'm actually leaving, sadly, um, after four years there to go to St. Peter's in Harrow, um, so up near Harrow on the Hill, which is a very nice leafy suburb. But, um, yeah, I'm going up there to lead a community church, um, again, an Anglican church, and some lovely folk up there at St. Peter's. And um, unlike St. Mary's, they all live very close. They've got a place called the Holy Mile, which I'm really excited about living in, where there's a mile of something like 20 families from the church, and they all live the along Holy the same mile. street. Yeah, So that's going to be a first to me. But um, I'm really excited about being up there. And one of the exciting things about St. Peter's is they've got um, St. Peter's medical practice in the, in the church building. They've got six doctors, all of them are Christian, and they offer prayer at the end of every consultancy. And they also have a prayer healing clinic that meets on a Tuesday night for people to come from the doctor's surgery to receive prayer for healing uh, following their consultation with a doctor so really excited about that i mean it seems brilliant to that's listen. incredible yeah. i mean is that a, fun, a fully funded yeah, NHS? It's an nhs t2 training practice so they're sort of one of the best practices in harrow um they've got you know five thousand um members on their books who come see them and and you know obviously there are parameters to what they offer within their consultancy but they do offer prayer and it's clear that's a christian practice and that you can go through to have prayer ministry on a tuesday night if you've if you've been to the medical center so i'm really excited about i've, I've got a real vision for church a place where you know god heals us body mind and and spirit and so having a having a medical center that works to heal your body a church where you're healed spiritually and a and an emotional healing center where you're healed emotionally seems to be very much in line with what jesus taught about you know about the whole life about coming to touch our whole lives so i'm excited about that should be great um well part of that is because you've been on a journey yourself um thinking about the whole mind and spirit relationship um tell us more about that well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of one of those classic kind of jock guys at university who played a whole lot of sports, drank a whole lot of beer, more one hang out with the lads and all this, and, and, and don't think too much. I, I don't think I ever thought too much about what's going on sort of internally. Um, I think, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a, a gender thing, but guys particularly, I think, can run, can run away and try to fill all your time with stuff being busy doing stuff all the time I remember um, when I finished uni I, I had to live on my own I lived with a whole group of guys and then suddenly I felt really sort of oh goodness I'm all alone I used to turn the radio on in every different room of my flat so I wouldn't be on my own and I think we all many people anyway try and avoid the internal narrative of what's actually going on inside and never kind of resolve really what they're saying to themselves um, internally and and live their world in relationships externally I think I lived like that for a long time um, and um, you know I, I can't, yeah, of course you become more resolved on your journey with God and you become more aware of yourself and God shows you areas where you need to repent change and be transformed but 
I, I come from a kind of um, from from quite a, a Christian background where it's not necessarily appropriate to talk about emotional things, and I, I've kind of applied that very strongly to myself. But actually, internally, I think there was a lot of kind of negative narrative about being a failure or not matching up or not being good enough. Um, and that, I carried that with me, I think, initially into my ministry, where I was sort of running, 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 trying to to prove myself. And then, um, and then, yeah, I, I, I experienced suddenly a point where I couldn't do that anymore. And so then I began to engage in what it meant to be sort of emotionally broken or emotionally whole. So that was the start of what happened to me. What was that point, Will? Was there suddenly a, a crisis or did you just get overwhelmed? I mean, what was it that prompted you to change the way you did life? Well, I think in ministry, as a vicar anyway, I mean, you might see this in, in your church, but um, th- there's often sort of Superman complex. And often it's not actually the vicar who's doing that or the church leader who's, who's participating in it in it consciously anyway, that we kind of look at our leaders and go, oh, yeah, you know, he's really making it happen. Um, and you can try and live up to other people's expectations. And I think I had, I had that. I, I felt internally too weak. Externally, I was, I was thinking, oh, I've got to match up to everyone's expectations. And so I ran very hard in my first year of ministry. Uh, one of my friends, Johnny, said to me, he said, you know, we thought we were thinking about you when you arrived. We were thinking, man, this guy's a machine. <laughs> and I was, I was a sort of a, I was a ministry machine. But inside, I was feeling very um, anxious and very vulnerable. And actually, it was the London bombings, which, which were the thing that tipped, tipped the balance in my emotional experience. So I was walking to Paddington tube station with my wife to drop her off. She was taking the train to Oxford. And I walked past... Edgware Road Station, which is just outside my office. And um, I remember thinking then, um, something serious has happened. But at that point, I mean, London's cordoned off half the time, so you never know what's really going on. Um, and I, I left my wife, and then I went back, and I just felt God was prompting me to put on my dog collar, which I don't wear very often, uh, if I'm honest. I, I normally wear T-shirt and jeans. So I put my dog collar on, and I kind of strode underneath this new cordon. And I went up to the police, and I said, look, you know, how can I help? And they said, well, um, have you got anywhere where we can use the, the loo? So I was like, well, of course, we've got this hall just here, just opposite the station. You know, let's open that up and your guys can come in and use it as a base. And within about 40 minutes, we probably had 250 police, ambulancemen, SO13 guys, you know, anti-terror squads, London Underground people in there. Um, and I, I began to meet victims, you know, under the cordon who'd been affected by the bomb. And before we knew it, you know, it was just, it, we were cordoned off into this kind of little island world where I was busy making tea and getting chickens from Sainsbury's and, you know, trying to provide a sort of buffet for people who were involved and praying for people and talking with people. And I kind of, I, I think that was the epitome of my sort of desire to be sort of superhuman. I was trying to do it all and make it all happen. And I remember one fireman said to me, Will, have you got a TV? So I said, oh, I've got one in my flat just down the street. So I ran off. And halfway along the street, I just was sick all over the floor. And, I, and I'm never normally sick. And I remember thinking, that's so weird. I, it didn't hurt. It was just like, I was just sick. And then I carried on, got my TV, ran back, and then sitting around on the, in front of the altar with about 20 firemen, we watched the, the bus bombing go off. You know, we watched the, the aftermath of the bus bomb. And... Um, it was just horrific. I mean, it was just a horrific experience. But reflecting on that afterwards, I remember that underneath, it was like I was not coping with all the anxiety and the fear and the feelings of vulnerability that this experience was creating in me. And yet I was trying to be, you know, this kind of solid rock who's sorting it all out and it's going to be okay. And 
it was only actually three months after the experience that I really realised what a deep impact that had had on me. And I began then to go, oh, my, I'm not really coping. And that's when anxiety as an experience started really kicking in. So on, for the rest of that day, you continued to function and to serve and, and yeah. help. Yeah. But from there, was there a gradual spiralling down and you started to... F I mean, was this some kind of post-traumatic... Yeah, that, I mean, this was an experience of what people would call post-traumatic stress disorder. But um, I think what's interesting about all these, these, these kind of conditional labels, sometimes people do experience post-traumatic stress disorder as, as an isolated incident. But I think, actually, my post-traumatic stress disorder was related to not really dealing with my internal dialogue much prior to that. What do you mean by internal dialogue? Well, I think if everyone you know, at home is thinking about what they think about in their day, and we have 65,000 different thoughts a day, and 45,000 of those thoughts are actually relatively meaningless, or they don't, they're, they're not things that we would act on, they're things that are slightly weird or odd. We have an awful lot of thoughts in our day, but we actually engage with a number of those thoughts, and they might be statements about how we are or who we are. So, you know, if you're in church and someone walks past you and doesn't talk to you, the, the internal dialogue might be, oh, what have I done to upset them, or oh, maybe they don't like me, or, you know... Maybe I just don't fit in here, or I'm I'm sort of oh, I'm such a failure, and and that sort of internal dialogue that we we'll all engage with to a level can be either healthy or unhealthy, um, and I think when we fail to recognise what we're saying to ourselves, uh, actually those messages come through. Like if I said to you, Jeff, well done, you've just won uh, the lottery, you've just won six million pounds, immediately how you feel is going to change, so immediately feel better, you feel excited, you might smile. You know, but if I said to you, you're a complete failure, then your internal reaction, your emotional reaction to that is to go, to, to feel subdued and to feel low and to feel like a failure. So what people are saying internally, how they're understanding their internal dialogue, will affect how they actually feel. Okay, so after this experience, which was undeniably, obviously very traumatic, yeah. did you start to pick up a trend within yourself? Because, yeah. I mean, you're so right, Will... We can be aware of so many different things, but not be aware of the the internal terrain of, sure. our, of ourselves. Yeah. Did you realise, boy, there's a pattern that I'm getting into, which yeah. is negative, which is fearful? Yeah, I, I, I definitely did, but it took me a bit of a bigger wake-up call than maybe it would for some other people. I was actually, I remember... Um, you know, just I was at a student. I was I was welcoming students at a student event, and I I started just feeling off physically. I started feeling shaky and and, and anxious. And then I, me and my wife were watching a film, and in the film I suddenly had what I know now to be a panic attack, mm. and that was really the breaking point for me. It was like suddenly my interior world and my exterior world were colliding. I was no longer able to just cope and say and, and just push through, which is what I'd always done, but had actually to kind of go. Oh my goodness! Something something is wrong. You know, I'm I'm actually stressed. This is what stress is. So for me, as as a guy, I was suddenly confronted by the fact that I wasn't coping, and this was the big sign. If you like, I've had a panic attack. What's that mean for Superman? You know, mm. that means that he's not Superman. He needs to sort his head out and work out what's really going on in his internal world. Listening to Will on the end of a very busy Sunday, it may be that you actually understand exactly what he's saying. Stress and anxiety can sometimes just totally overwhelm us. This programme tonight is about hope. It's going to be about Will's story. For some of us, we're just feeling anxious about the week ahead. All of us, though, are trying to live in the deep hope and joy of being a Christian. How do we?
live in the reality of that. Will, you, you talked about a panic attack, and, and for some people who've never experienced that, it's a sort of don't panic Captain Mannering sort of image. What exactly was a panic attack for you? Well, I think lots of people experience panic attacks in, in different ways, but the, the kind of core of a panic attack is an overwhelming sense of dread or fear. Now, that feeling is, can be very physical because, because the mind affects physiological changes in us. So often people who are beginning to panic begin to hyperventilate, and then the overoxygenation of their bloodstream causes all sorts of extreme sensations. And people who are having a panic attack will actually normally rise up in the panic attack for, for up to 10 minutes. They'll crescendo and then the body kicks in to actually kind of begin to bring physiological changes which restore their feelings of normality um, so someone who's having a panic attack might sweat profusely feel hot or cold they might experience tingling they might feel dizzy feel the need to sit down uh, they might feel sick or be sick uh, and they might also be overwhelmed by this incredible feeling of dread now panic attacks uh, are suffered by a huge swathe of people nationally uh, and, and nearly everyone will have a panic attack in their lifetime but sometimes people do uh, develop something called panic disorder where they actually have panic attacks on a regular even a daily or even a, an hourly basis and it's a very uncomfortable condition the great news about panic attacks is that they can be very easily treated but what you need to understand is is how and why the panic attack is happening um, and, and so if anyone who's listening is struggling with panic attacks or do think that they've had one it's very very, very good idea to, to find out more about paying tax and actually to talk to your GP about it. I mean, I experienced a very short uh, period of, of, of experiencing panic before a friend of mine showed me that what I was doing by getting upset and then hyperventilating was causing me to experience those physiological symptoms. But sometimes people need to, you know, to work through those over a long period of time. There's, there's a number of great books out there about how to work, work free. My, my experience of panic, though, led me immediately into an experience of depression because I suddenly thought, oh, I'm completely losing it, you know. So when my Superman complex, kind of where I was trying to hold it all together and be this great, I'm coping with life, sort of came to that cracking point, suddenly I kind of fell really down because I realised I wasn't really being able to maintain the, you know, the, the sort of exterior that I'd hoped to. And um, so for a few weeks I just felt really completely on the low. Um, and, and I know there's, there, you know, there's the number of people out there who know exactly what that's all about. There's something 11.2% of women suffer from depression, and you know, we, there were, um, you know, there's 121 million people affected by depression worldwide last year. So, so these emotional experiences are, yeah, they're 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 tipping points really, or they're they're highlights of our internal emotional world. The reality is though that we all, every person has has the same propensity to experience them. What we need to do is be aware of ourselves and be able to, to kind of to engage and deal with what's happening to our emotional world. So the Reverend Superman, to use your, to use <laughs> your analogy, you, you you go into this panic attack, you drift or you descend into a depression. Let's let's explore. What did you do with that as a as a Christian first of sure. all, and then as a leader? What yeah what happened? Well, I mean, I, I think what's so ex interesting about my experience particularly is that. Is that if you're really trying to show everyone that you know you're justified in ministry, you're, you know you're very equipped, you're very skilled, you're a good speaker, you care for people, the last thing you want is something that shows that you're emotionally vulnerable too, because you're you know to yourself you're not engaging in who you really are, and actually you're not really allowing God to minister through you, you're actually ministering through yourself through your own power, 
and it's a hopeless experience to be in. And, and this session is about hope, and actually real hope comes through being in God's presence and in God's hands. And Paul says, you know, you know, in, in, in my weakness, then he is strong, and, and God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. The thing is, I came from a, a background and had a, you know, a sense of myself, which meant that I found it very hard to accept that I might be weak. What was great about what God in my, did in my life was that actually I, I realized that I actually was weak. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, God needs to show you, not saying that he was responsible for my experience, but that God shows us and redeems our experience to show us that actually there's another way of being. And that's by being who God's really made us to be. And I found that through finding resolution in my internal world through allowing God to permeate my brokenness and my weakness, he's actually allowed me to minister with real power, you know, with his power to other vulnerable and broken people. So it, it hurts when you're depressed and you're a Christian leader, but I was at a conference this weekend and both of the leaders who were speaking had experienced depression. Actually, and I was, I was quoting from John Stott and others who, you know, great Christian leaders who've experienced depression. That's very, very common. But sometimes we can think, well, I need to be joyful in all circumstances, you know, and by prayer and petition bring my request to God. I mustn't be anxious about anything. Um, so we can use kind of verses of Scripture sort of to beat ourselves on the head and say, well, now you're really a failure. But actually what we're doing is we're misunderstanding the theology of the verse, you know, that we're not asked to create a sort of veneer of strength in our weakness, that's when he is truly strong. And if we look at great biblical characters like Gideon, who was obviously suffering from terrible anxiety when he lay on the threshing room floor, it was in his weakness, it was in his anxiety that God actually defeated the Midianites with 300 men. Or if you look at, you know, David in his terrible depression after his adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51, we see a man who's deeply depressed but in his vulnerability and depression he relies on the redemption and the strength of the Lord. So biblical characters, Paul, you know, David, Moses, they've all experienced emotional, you know, depths, the depths of the darkness of emotional brokenness, but they meant they're ministering and relating to God out of that. It's not something that we need to be fearful of or create a false veneer of ourselves to cover over. Will, can you just give us um, some very practical steps um, before we move on and look at, you know, leadership in the church, have you personally, you have found yourself in this depression, you realised that scripture was telling you that's an all right place to be um, and actually weakness is a good place to be able to sit in. But but, but obviously you're not feeling depressed, I'm, I'm assuming, today. So you've been on a journey that has put, put you back together again sure. to that place. Uh, how did that happen? Well, um, my journey out of depression, fortunately, my, my, my experience of depression was relatively short-lived. And I, I want to sort of say that at Minus Soul, we stand with people who are experiencing depression as a long-term condition, uh, not just something that they might get over. And one of the things that we need to understand is, as Christian leaders particularly, is to give people who are suffering from emotional distress, of which one in six people will be doing at any time, uh, that they have permission to be in that place. And often, I mean, depression feeds off isolation. Isolation. And my, my sort of desire to be all to all people um, was a way of isolating myself, really, against the reality of myself and the people around me, not allowing, allowing people to stand with me. So I, I recommend the, one of the first things that someone does who's depressed is actually to actually to bring about disclosure, to be honest about how they're really feeling, certainly with the people who love them, that they know are safe, and also with their GP. 40% of those suffering with depression will never consult their GP. What's so sad is that that 40% of, of the 20% of 
people who are suffering from depression in this country this year will actually not be receiving the assistance that they really need. And actually there is a great journey out of depression for those who are suffering. Um, and what we recommend in Mind and Soul is a multifaceted approach that we believe in medication, we believe in therapy, uh, and not all therapies are the same, but certainly cognitive behavioral therapy is a very new helpful model of therapy to lead people out of depression, but also prayer ministry. So what's happened in, 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 in medical healing is we believe that we believe in prayer ministry and we believe in seeing the doctor. But in some churches, um, there is a sense by which it's okay to see the doctor if you've got something wrong with you physically, but if you've got something wrong with you emotionally, you, you know, you mustn't go to see the doctor, and you, mustn't, you, know, you mustn't receive anything other than prayer or scripture. So, um, but that, again, is isolating. So we need, if you're depressed at the moment, you need to realise that it's okay to be where you are. It's okay with God that he loves you right where you are right now. It's okay to be weak. It's okay to disclose how you feel to those who love you, to those who are around you, and to seek assistance. Now, the, my journey out of depression was to do all of those things. And actually, my wife, who um, you know, is just an amazing woman, picked me up and gave me permission to lean on her, which is something in our marriage I'd always sort of, I'd been kind of gung-ho and, you know, don't worry, darling, I'll look after you, like I am Tarzan, you are Jane, you know. But actually, in our relationship, it turns out she's Tarzan and I'm Jane. Well, that's a bit generous, gender stereotyping, <laughs> I'm sorry. What I mean is that, you know, in our relationship, um, you know, I'd, I'd sort of, you know, been trying to look after her, but actually she was able to really look after me and I realised that was okay. And now I'd say three years later, our relationship is is so much better than it was before because because I rely on her and she looks after me and and when she's in need, I, I look after her and she relies on me. But if we don't allow ourselves to rely on others, to be weak and vulnerable with others, how can we ever be healed? You know, Jesus is asking us to rely on Him. Are we? You know, if we're so arrogant as to say, well, no, I'm not going to rely on anyone. How are we ever really going to le lean on Jesus fully and know what that really means? What is this irrational um, hesitation about medication about in the church? Because I know whenever I talk about depression publicly, people literally come out of the woodwork to say that there's this quack idea in their churches that to somehow rely on medication, and a lot of depression is the result of chemical imbalance therefore can be somewhat helped or resolved physiologically by medicine why are we so nervous about that well i think it's really interesting i i, I mean i do think that we have a sort of uh, like a slightly platonic division of, yeah. of the body and the mind particularly in, in in our western culture if you think about um the the people of israel um you know here they are in the desert they're a tribal group of people they're seeking the lord moses is with them they're wandering around in the desert now they don't have a doctor, they don't have a head of an army, they don't have a judge, they don't have a politician. What they have is a priest. And the priest was all of those things. And so the way that they respond to the priest is they respond to God because the priest is telling them what to eat and what not to eat because God's saying it, because God's in charge. And the way in which they're viewing the whole self is holistic, that God actually loves body, mind, and spirit. And that's what Paul's also saying to the Corinthian church. Don't do whatever you like with the body and then just look after the mind, you know, but, but see all of it as integrated before the Lord. And I think when we, have these, we make these odd distinctions about medication for the body but not for the mind, 
we're actually not understanding how the mind and the body are actually connected. For example, if, you, if someone has a, 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 a terrible pain in their body, they might take paracetamol. Well, I'm sure no Christians would say it was wrong to take paracetamol, yet paracetamol treats the mind and not the body. Paracetamol actually treats the source of pain in the brain. It doesn't treat the source of pain in the leg. So say you've, you've, got, terrible, um, you've got a terrible uh, injury on your leg and, the, and you decide to take paracetamol. Now, the paracetamol isn't actually treating the injury in your leg. It's actually treating your brain and turning off the centre of pain. So any Christian who's willing to take medication for, you know, for pain in their leg is effectively taking medication for pain in their brain. I mean, that's just one obvious, you know, mis anomaly with the way we view psychological medication. Now, it is important that listeners recognise that there are different psychological medications that have different effects. Every doctor who prescribes medication is qualified to do so. And as much as the press would like to suggest that we're, we're just, you know, there's a willy-nilly approach to the way in which psychological medication is distributed, that's not the case. Doctors are responsible for our well-being and they're making medical decisions on the basis of medical evidence. SSRI medications, which are called serotonin disruptive inhibitors, are there to stop serotonin, which is the very key chemical in, the well, in our feelings of well-being, from being reabsorbed by our synapses. So basically SSRI medication blocks the reabsorption of serotonin. It doesn't actually produce more serotonin. So what you're doing by taking an SSRI medication is stopping this, this very important feel-good chemical, serotonin, from being very quickly reabsorbed into your, into your, into your body. And it's by, by remaining more, uh, for a more lengthy period of time in your synapses, you do feel better. Now we have to you know, when people are depressed, often it's the chemical distribution between cortisol and serotonin, which is out of balance. And so when people are taking an antidepressant medication, they're not taking a hallucinogenic drug that's going to make them feel super high. They're taking something which is preserving the serotonin levels that they're already producing. Now, if you can take SSRI medication, you can also increase your, SR, your, your serotonin levels by running, by eating a healthy diet, by sleeping, you know, by receiving massage, you know, there are lots of, by listening, by watching to comedy videos, you know, Ricky Gervais can help you improve your serotonin levels. But, but all of those things are affecting your brain. So we need to avoid a sort of weird division in the way we're viewing medication, but equally we need to be responsible. And I believe that medication in a, prescribed by a doctor, matched with cognitive behavioural therapy and prayer ministry is the best route to walking out of depression. We're talking to Will Vanderhart this evening about a subject that we know just sitting here in the studio this evening, for some of us this is not just a, an issue of vague interest but this is a real lifeline because this is exactly where we find ourselves right now and we'll be coming back to talk a little more with will about mind and soul there is not only help available uh, through as we've been hearing prayer ministry through uh, appropriately uh, given prescription drugs but uh, there's a network available to help you if you find yourself in that place right now And the rest of that interview can be downloaded from the Premiere website, www.premiere.org.uk. We'd like to remind you that the first London 
Mind and Soul podcast will be taking place on Friday the 3rd of October and booking forms are downloadable from the Mind and Soul website www.mindandsoul.info. Thank you for listening.